2: This episode is brought to you by BentoBox, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using BentoBox today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com chef.
3: So you don't, don't shun the, the devil, devil, devil with your rock right and roll, Lord. No. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The oh. groove in rhythm and blues that It's gonna get you some in
4: the air. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolte.
1: My name is Southern T. And I'm
3: Greg Benson. Aloha. <laughs> Aloha. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Which means
3: hello and goodbye. Yeah. At this
4: time, it means hello, and sorry to miss out the two last weeks of the Speakeasy. Um, we were on a, a quick little station break, a little seasonal break. We came back, and I actually missed the first two because I was in Hawaii, and I was in Kihei, or not Kihei. I was in, uh, where was I? I was in Kauai, which is Hawaiian for quiet. Um, that is a, a very, very quiet island. <laughs> I
3: did not know that. Yeah.
4: True um, facts from the Speakeasy. Yeah. I've been to Maui, I've been to, you know, Honolulu, Waikiki for like Kauai Food and Wine Festival. Uh, you know, a few times for Maui and Oahu, but my first time to Kauai, and you know, honestly, like people told me they are like, it's really quiet. They're like everything shuts down at like seven o'clock. I was like, Yeah, sure, whatever, I don't believe you. But no, they were telling the truth. The cool thing about <laughs> it is that, you. you know, it was it actually felt like like a legit just shut down vacation, like relax like no self-service or, or very, very rarely did I have any service or connectivity. I, you know, I brought my laptop and it stayed closed pretty much the entire time. So it was actually really, I mean, nice. was that
1: the purpose of the trip? Was this a vacation? I mean,
4: it was just, it was a vacation. Yeah. It wasn't, yeah. You know, I feel like, you know, for us in our industry, we like every trip is a work trip. Even a vacation mm-hmm. is a work trip or a work trip is kind of a vacation vice versa, you know? So like, We get to—I mean, it's the best industry to be in because that's—that is what we do. Even when I think about going on vacation, I'm like, okay, where am I going to eat and what am I going to drink, you know, while I'm there? And
1: right, what sort of R&D, low-key R&D, am I going to do while I'm there? Yeah,
4: exactly. Like, is there a distillery, a winery, you know, a brewery? Is there like a restaurant that would be great to go check out and maybe get some inspiration from? So this was actually um, just a full, like, just shut down, like, with kayaking and snorkeling things. I, I will say this though. There was one tiki bar in uh, Honolulu, like the Honolulu Bay um, on the north side of uh, Kauai that Todd Rundgren owns. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's called Tiki and Niki, and so I spent about like I don't know, I was probably there probably we were there for five nights. I was at Tiki and Niki probably seven times. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm, you know Todd Rundgren's a a huge like musical influence, Uh, and uh, you know. it kind of shows in that bar. You know, there's a lot of kind of wackiness. I mean, Tiki's kind of wacky anyway, but you know, but Todd Runger definitely put his influence on it. So it was cool. What, what uh, Southern, you've been kind of coming out West too lately, right? Uh, Yeah.
1: Well, so um, surprise, surprise. I'm opening another business, um, but this is no the first shit. one. <laughs> <laughs> this will be the first one to get open. Um, that's outside of not only New York city, but outside of the East village. Um, so, um, pretty exciting. We're opening an avant-garde bistro out there, um, which just means it's avant-garde, like the one in the city, but it's bigger and it has a bar, although it's still just a beer and wine license. So I'm making cocktails using wines and fortified wines, etc. Um, and it's uh, it's pretty rad. It's uh, like a Cloisters. Um, part of the restaurant is, is indoor, but the larger part of the restaurant is kind of in the center of the restaurant and it's outdoor. Um, oh cool! And, and and in California in LA anyway, you know I was out there for several days and I caught up with a lot of folks from 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 you know my past and um, you know Austin Henley was saying, oh yeah, we we, we get seven days of rain a year. If you've got a if you've got an enclosed, we get so it's you've got walls all the way around you. It's just open above you. Um, he says if you're enclosed and the wind isn't going to bother you, you can be open. You can be open 355 days a year. Amazing. So, pretty cool. Uh, very excited. Um, and then, of course, you know, we're going to do another one outside the city as well. But, yep. yep uh, all the places now are within five blocks of each other, and now one that's thousands of miles away.
4: Souther's going to be in L.A. Invest in sunscreen, Souther. <laughs> <Yeah>, I
1: should. <laughs> I should. I actually have to fly back tomorrow. Um, I'm getting up early in the morning to fly back tomorrow for a press dinner out there, and uh, friends and family, and that sort of thing. And we'll be open by the first. Oh, wow. It's that close. Oh, man. Yeah, man.
4: All right. Yeah. Well, uh it's crunch time, baby. I will. Uh, I'll just keep my eye out for that invite to the friends and family. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, I'm same. I guess out. mine must have got lost <laughs> in the mail or something. I mean, you're both invited. It's in LA. <laughs> um, just a little outside of the East Village, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's an easy flight for me to get down there. That's cool. Great, man. Well, congratulations on that and look forward to checking that out. Um, I actually have, have been planning a couple of trips to go down to LA for the, the summer. So I'll definitely swing by.
1: Yeah, yeah. I definitely want you to do that, and uh, maybe we can coordinate one where we can hang out there together. That'd be great. Because there's a lot going on, man. I, when I was there this past week, uh, you know, I just got back on Sunday and have to turn right, right back around and go back tomorrow, but, um, you know, I got to... I just mentioned Austin Henley. He's working at uh, Michelin-starred uh, Cato, uh, uh, which is amazing. He's he- heading up the bar there. I saw um, Aaron Polsky, of course, from Livewire and formerly of Amori Margot as well. I saw... Um, Laura Newman happened to be in town, and we went to a oh, great restaurant what? called Yeah. We went to a great restaurant together called Biciclette, and right upstairs from oh, there, man. they have a bar that's all vintage. Everything on the bar is vintage, and the head bartender up there is uh, uh, Kyle Hunter Bailey. So I saw Kyle, Aaron, and and uh, uh, Austin, all three dudes who used to work for me at and Margot. So uh, and, and completely unplanned, didn't plan to see anybody while I was there, and saw all these people. And it's really uh, I'm gonna have a I think I'm gonna have a pretty solid community out there. Great. So, That's amazing, you know, dude. You'll have to come this down. Is, and this is the
3: last show that Southern did from New
1: York. <laughs> that is, I am not moving back to California. I am, I'm, I'm definitely a city guy. I'm going to stay in New York. How about I you, go Greg? anywhere. I'm going to a beach town, like somewhere in Portugal. There you go. Greg, what's up with you?
4: I had COVID since the
3: last time we did a show, uh, I haven't done. I haven't done shit. Your first uh, run, huh? basically been here. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, don't, don't believe what you read in the newspapers. It, it, it was not fun. Um, it's actually, it's the craziest thing. Cause my, my girlfriend got it and we'd been around each other pretty consistently for like a week. So whatever I was like, well, shit, wherever she got it, I must've got it too. So I was testing negative at first and I just kept, you know, waiting, for it to kick in. And, you know, I was testing negative, testing negative, testing negative. One day we both texted negative. So we went out and got pizza and saw Dr. Strange. And the next day you and I saw that we're going to fly to Mexico to do a little thing with Lou Bank and Chava from a road trip. And I did, I did one of those just to be safe tests uh, a couple hours before I was going to leave for the airport. And that I tell you, man, that line showed up like, immediately like it wasn't like playing coy like oh i don't know maybe
1: you've got it it
3: was just like yep you're there
1: the faint line no just a just like a pin drew it right there
3: yep it was a it was a robust and affirmative positive so uh i've basically been here i have i have nothing to contribute to the life update portion of this show nothing exciting has happened to me between now and the last time we spoke
4: here's me spinning a positive um because we were going to (laughs) be staggered you two were going to go down there and i wasn't able to but i'm going to be going down at the end of july so maybe we can all uh re-coordinate and actually go down there at the same time now
1: I mean, I would be, yeah, yeah, exactly. We were all going to go. It just wasn't lining up in the cards for us to all go. So it was just going to be Greg and I with Chava and and Lou. Um, and now that we didn't get to go, yeah, maybe we can we can recalibrate and all of us can go together and do a great show with the Agave Road Trip and have them on our show cause, or have uh, have have us be on their show because we've already hosted them on ours.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is this is uh, disc two of our double album that we're doing with them. Right.
4: Exactly. Right. Well, speaking of that, let's get into the show. Why don't you bring our guest in, y'all?
3: Yeah, man. So uh, on the show with us today, we have Cole Newton, who is uh, not only the owner of 12 Mile Limit and the Domino in New Orleans, but he is also the author of Cocktail Dive Bar, Real Drinks, Fake History and Questionable Advice from New Orleans 12 Mile Limit. And he's the new head of the USBG. So we got
5: a lot to talk with Cole about. Cole, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on.
3: Anytime. So, uh, so yeah, let's, I mean, I guess the, the, the best place to start is you're, you're not, you're the guy in charge now, you know, all roads lead to you. How, how did that come about? How have you, how, tell us about your meteoric rise to the top of the (laughs) the bartending political sphere.
5: Oh, well, yeah, I guess it, I don't know if meteoric is the right term. I've been a Guild member since probably 2010, maybe earlier. I've been a leader in the New Orleans chapter for for a good while, or at least I was until I ascended to the National Board. You're really not supposed to wear the local leader hat and the national leader hat at the same time because of the uh, conflicts of interest. But I was elected to the National Board of Directors uh, in 2010, uh, sorry, not 2010, 2020, Great timing, too. You know, all, all, of the, yeah. all of the fun perks that come with that, all the travel and the the restaurants and everything that goes with being on the National Board of Directors. It was just replaced with lots and lots of Zoom meetings. So yeah. Yeah, real <laughs> real crunch time for that. Um, and then over the last couple of years, uh, or the, at the beginning of this year, I was appointed as the um, the Executive Vice President of the Board of Directors. And Kim Hasselrood, who has been on the National Board for a long time. She's great. She's out of Phoenix. I'm sure you all know Kim. Mm-hmm. Um, she was uh, appointed the president, but she made it very clear she was opening a new bar. She's got a couple of teenage kids at home. Uh, her her bandwidth was pretty limited, and she was she served uh, very well last year and was serving pretty well this year. But when push came to shove, uh, she realized that she needed to take some more personal time, and being the president of the USBG did not allow that. So uh, she resigned at the, about a month ago, know, a few weeks ago, and uh, by default. I was elevated to the presidency. <laughs> ascension, um,
1: ascension was thrust upon you?
5: It was, yes. It was uh, not wholly unexpected. You don't wind up being, becoming the president without having it in the back of your mind that you might be the president one day. But the timeline was a little faster than I would have uh, would have predicted.
3: Well, let me let me ask you this, because I think we all, or at least I do, I have a bar in my past, and I feel like a lot of people do, where it's like anything that it, I ever encounter for the rest of my life. I'll be like, this can't possibly scare me because I worked at this place, this place that was (laughs) so, so busy and so dysfunctional and so nuts that like nothing could ever top that, that level of adrenaline and stress and fear. Uh, Is it, is, is starting working for the national chapter in early 2020, kind of like that? Like, are you sort of, do, do you feel now that you're like, well, I knock on wood, am equipped to deal
5: with just about anything? Yeah, I guess so. There's really nothing that I could see coming down the... I guess not, though. You know, like every time we say, hey, you know what? The worst is behind us. I've... There's nothing I can't handle now because I did X. <laughs> well, the world will surprise you. So <laughs> let's just... I'm going to go ahead and knock on wood and assume that something even harder will eventually come down the pipeline. But I do feel pretty uh, pretty toughened up by, by that experience. Um, but honestly, like... Having a kid during the pandemic, I have a three and a half year old, uh, and and he was uh, just starting to walk, toddle around at the beginning. That was a that was an adventure unto itself. Working the brunch bar at Commander's Palace, honestly, I think was
1: harder wow. than being yeah. on the
5: National Board of Directors of the USPG. Oh I mean, yeah. wow. I, so. I said, how many
1: how many uh, uh, covers a day does the brunch do at Commander's? I, I can't even Let's imagine. Let's see. You can seat about 700 to 800
5: people in a turn, and they try to do at least two turns for brunch. Some, and they opened earlier on Sundays, so they could, they could squeeze in like two and a half turns. So you're looking at, at least, around 1,500 people. Um, And so, and let's see The downstairs, there's three bartenders Working at two bars There's the main bartender uh, Who's primarily working uh, Like the belly up bar that you go to When you're waiting for the rest of your party to arrive And then there's another one at the main bar Who's working the service bar for the main dining room And then there's a patio bar That is just serving the patio dining room And then upstairs, there's five more dining rooms And one more bartender So the upstairs brunch bartender And the service bar upstairs is in a dish pit so oh God. Yeah. it's very steamy um yeah. and so you're <laughs> serving <laughs> probably yeah. a thousand guests over the course of a sunday brunch in the upstairs yeah. bar at commander's palace and you're not seeing a single one of them you're just seeing disgruntled yeah, service waiting for them. Yeah. oh and you're also the barista too so if you want to oh and, christ and because the coffee service if you did a regular coffee service a it's coffee with chicory which turns a lot of people off but it's traditional and b the, the servers were responsible for their own coffee service if they rang in a regular coffee. So they would always upsell to espressos and cappuccinos because then they just show up at the bar and pick it up. So that's a wild ride. It was it was something I I hated and resented doing for about of the year that I was there. I hated it for about eight months, and eventually I just started stealing one of the balloons that they decorated the tables with and putting it on the bar at the beginning of my shift. And that was all it took. After that, I loved it. Then it was my bar, and I was like, it was my little rock that I was pushing up that hill every Sunday.
1: Right. <laughs> well, that's that's a very Sisyphean effort to to try and overcome the wave of nonstop uh, uh, customers at, at Commander's Palace. Yeah, that's I want to the, talk a little bit more, though. The, yeah, I, have, I have a pretty great deal of experience with USBG myself, but I want uh, our listeners to have a greater understanding of what the USBG kind of is. Can you just talk about USBG in general? Yeah, you, the USBG is a
5: nonprofit organization uh, dedicated to uh, the bar industry. So the bar industry, we're using that term pretty holistically. So bartenders are really the, 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 the focus of the organization, but it, people in the bar industry include your your producers, your your distributors wholesalers it all the way you know bar owners like me i also still tend bar occasionally um and you're in the, down to the enthusiasts. so like the guests at your bar are, are a critical part And like, none of this happens if people don't show up at our bars and give us their dollars so the we're dedicated to the bar industry and uh really about uh, three pillars. We just re- revamped our strategic plan and our mission or value statement. And there are three pillars that we're focusing on as an organization right now, which are community, education, and now advocacy, which is a really interesting part. And that's distinct. Like people say advocacy in the, in this trade, they're primarily talking about advocating on behalf of brands. It's essentially brand work uh, within so the, the vernacular of the bar community, but we're talking about it in a, in a grander sense. We're talking about policy advocacy. And I think one of the things that the organization realized and that a lot of people realized during in the industry, especially during the last couple of years, is how much of our lives, our day-to-day lives are governed by by legislation or by executive order about whether or not you can go to work in the morning or in, in the evening, I guess, it's probably more common. Um, but it, like those things affect so much of our day to day about how the, how liquor is distributed in the, from state to state, uh, ha- whether or not you're allowed to do happy hour, you know, all these different things that are controlled by, by either legislation or executive fiat, um, there should be more of a voice, uh, specifically for the bar side of the servant industry. And we're, we're going to try to. Uh, build out that that function of the organization moving forward. We don't have any, like, this is, again, we just did this like two weeks ago. So we're, there's no specific policy platform that we're stumping for right now. Uh, the trick for that is going to try to find things where we can find broad agreement across the organization. Because let's say, for example, I believe uh, that the minimum wage should be higher for people in the service industry. Um, I might not speak for all bar owners. I think many bar owners probably are pretty happy paying Two fifty an hour or whatever they can get away with, Um, so that might not be where we uh, you know plant our flag. But I do think there are a lot of opportunities, you know, control state issues, things like that, uh, where there would be broad agreement between the producers and the distributors and the owners and the boots on the ground workers. So that's that's a a fun one. But also, there's a legacy to the organization too. The the USBG turns seventy five next year. Wow. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, people think of it as a relatively because bartending, uh, the guild really blew up in the uh, in the in the aughts and the and the teens. Uh, but people were just kind of flocking to this organization. They were like, "Oh, there's a professional organization dedicated to bartending. I want in." Because people were starting to take the craft really seriously and elevating it, and they were looking for a way to to move forward in their careers. And this this organization had existed for at that point, I guess, fifty five years or so. Uh, and people were just drawn to it. But the legacy of the organization is something that a lot of people forget about. And it's not all, you know, it's not every part of the legacy of the organization is pretty. Uh, being in California, it was originally founded as the the, the California wing of the uh, Great Britain Bartenders Guild, I think, uh, it was an offshoot of the, Great Britain, the British Bartenders Guild, uh, which allowed California bartenders to participate in these sort of international events and competitions. And honestly, competitions is still a big part of what the, the, what the guild does, um, is, is facilitating these national and international cocktail competitions.
1: Yeah, so so that and all that stuff is great, right? Uh, getting people to do competitions is very community building and things like that, and certainly bragging rights and and, and stuff like that. But uh, sounds to me like the the guild is maybe turning its uh, aim towards being a little bit more of a, a kind of a lobbying situation or something that could actually change policies in, in the United States to to, to better the world of, of bartending. Is that is that is that the case? That is the goal
5: ultimately. Like I said, we've only we've only decided collectively as a board. Um, that that advocacy in that way that sort of legislative and, and policy advocacy is going to be a focus in the last month or so and it's going to take a long time before you can really build that out and there, as a, uh, so theres there's different ways that nonprofits are organized so the the USBG is a 501c6 organization um, which means that we are like a regional business alliance so if you have a neighborhood business association that's usually a 501c6 or uh, you know, t- trade associations like the Guild or 501c6s. Uh, we also have the non- uh, the nonprofit wing. And I know you, I, you know what? I remember now that I'm thinking about it, that, that Kim was on the, the, y'all's podcast in 2020 yep. to talk about the, the charitable foundation, right? So the charitable mm-hmm. foundation is a 501c3 dedicated to like d- giving direct aid to people and ser- service in that way. Um, there's also, there's a bunch of other different categories, but the one that's uh, specifically a lobby is a 501c4 I'm not sure whether, but 501c6s are also allowed to do a certain amount of lobbying if you don't, if it's not like more than X percent of your organizational bandwidth, you can get away with it as a 501c6. So it's probably going to start without becoming a lobby unto ourselves. Um, But if that grows, if that's successful, then I could see spinning off a separate, similar to the way the relationship the guild has with the charitable foundation, is spinning off a separate advocacy arm as a 501c4. That's probably a little wonkier than y'all needed need me to get on that.
1: Well, I mean, yes and no. It's great to understand and know that there are organizations out there that are on the side of the common you know, person in, in our field, and all the way down to, as you said, even the enthusiasts. Enthusiasts can be members as well, uh, which just generates a greater community. So it's good to know that there are people out there that are on our side because as we discovered and, and saw sort of the hard way during the pandemic, not a lot of folks are in our corner. Yeah, it's
5: really mm-hmm. a shame because bars are so important to the, the functioning of society. So I was, well, I think you're right that a, there was a lot of, like we were kind of just left to our own devices as an industry. And the, 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 not entirely, I would say the, the NRF, the National Restaurant Foundation um, did work that sort of, it was inclusive of bars, but in a way, like, but a lot of ways we weren't, you know? A lot of places where restaurants were allowed to open, bars weren't. So you had to pretend to be a restaurant in order to, to stay open. Uh, and, and realizing that there wasn't anybody looking out for us. But also the other side of that is that people realize how important bars are to a community, to a functioning society, right? That, that there's no other place in the world where you can just go and strike up a conversation with a person sitting two seats down from you. And it's not weird. You know, even like you know, there's all these, the idea of the third space the, 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 your home is the first space, the sociological stuff home is your first space, your work or your school, wherever you're obligated to go to, you know, become better person or contribute to society. That's the second space. The third space are the places that you just go to be outside in public among other people, and that can be a park, that can be a coffee shop, it can be all sorts of places. But the only one of those places where you can really just engage and interact with strangers and and strike up conversations about any range of topics, that's the bar. It's the only place like that in the world. Um, and great, I think good people, place. yeah, it's it's very good place. Uh, and and I think people f- recognized for the first time they took that for granted for so long. And I think really people are recognizing for the first time how important the bar is. To the fabric of a of a neighborhood of an, of a society,
3: yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that you know you we were we were um, talking about this recently on the show about it really crystallizes what you've the the what you'd lost, and I think a lot of us you know we realized like we didn't you know we didn't just miss the drinks, we didn't just miss you know the 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 fun inventive menus or you know all those delightfully upsold uh, lattes at Commander's Palace, you know that we missed the excuse that you have yet yeah, to just be in perfect communion with other human beings. And that's, you know, something that, that I'm glad that is uh, in a lot of ways, I think we've seen that it's inherent to human beings. That's never going to go away. Um, and you've actually kind of written a, a, a book, I think a little bit about that, but <laughs> we also need to take a quick break here and hear from some of our sponsors. So we will talk about that and some other, uh, I'm sure tall tales. And, uh, what was it? Faith. Fake stories and real drinks. Real drinks, fake history, limit.
5: and questionable advice is the is the long line. Beautiful. Well, that's coming
3: up after this on The Speakeasy. Stay tuned. Hey, everybody. Greg here from The Speakeasy, coming to you with a little bit of a personal uh, ask this week. Uh, recently, a good friend of mine who is a second-generation cheesemonger here in Brooklyn had a really, really bad fire rip through her family's shop amazing place uh, just outside of Prospect Park called Hiller and Moon. And the loss is uh, devastating, not just in terms of the actual property and the inventory that they lost, but just because of, you know, the, the place that this store has been able to provide for so many, many years to this neighborhood. You know, during the pandemic, we all kind of Realized how much we loved that, that personal touch of people who, you know, knew us and worked in just this one place and specialized in this one thing. And, you know, could really build a a community around doing something that they were passionate about. And, uh, My friend is very passionate about her work, and I am now very passionate about trying to help. So in the show notes for today's episode, we're going to have a link to the GoFundMe to help out Hiller and Moon recover from this really, really bad fire. Uh, If you have it in you, I know not everybody does, but if you have it in you and you feel like giving back to a worthwhile and dare I say it, cheesy cause, uh, please donate. We'll also put it on our social media as well. And thanks so much for your generosity, everybody. Happy listening.
2: Did you know that over 70% of diners research a restaurant online before ordering from or going in person? Your digital front door is more important than ever. Let BentoBox design and build you a beautifully branded website. BentoBox websites provide sleek design and seamless content management, creating impactful first impressions and converting visitors into customers. And with built-in commerce and marketing tools like online ordering, gift cards, automated email, and more, you can also grow your revenue and keep your diners coming back. Join over 8,000 restaurants that leverage Bento Box to power their digital presence and deliver great hospitality. Visit getbento.com chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com chef. This episode is supported by HRN business member ClearCogs, as in cost of goods sold. ClearCogs saves restaurants money by providing daily food prep forecasting to help reduce food waste. Using historic restaurant transaction data and custom machine learning models, ClearCogs predicts how much of each ingredient or menu item needs to be prepped on each day. To learn more, visit ClearCogs.com. That's clear, C-O-G-S, dot com. Clear Cogs supports HRN's creative, educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place.
4: And we're back. You're listening to the Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. And in the studio today, we have Cole Newton. We've been talking about a lot. We've talked about the USBG. We've talked about bars coming back. Honestly, we talked about the third space, which I really I love the book, The Great Good Place by uh, Ray Oldenburg. It's the third space is so important that a, book, a whole book has been written about it. You know, it was written back in the late eighties. Yeah. And uh, you know, I will tell you this just to touch back on that real quickly. Um, I have noticed a lot less of people complaining about high drink prices uh, in this new era because you know it's that whole thing where like you know what? Well, you can drink for Drink for a lot cheaper at home, um, but the reason why you're there is because of the community and kind of like the social needs that people have. So it's it's really the third space is extremely important, and so I'm glad you touched on that because it's it's never been as important as it is now. You know. Um, but speaking of books, let's talk about yours. Why don't you uh, bring us back into that one? Uh, I, like first of all, I I love the title. Um, Thank you. <laughs>
5: Uh, I gotta tell you, the title changed. Um, there was a working title. I, I had a blog and then uh, started the book with a working title, T. Cole Newton's Big Fat Cocktails, um, <laughs> and was sold with that title. That I, the, It went to the publisher, and the publishers are like, yes, this is a book we want on store shelves coast to coast, T. Cole Newton's Big Fat Cocktails. But by that time, I started writing the book right around the time I opened the bar. I was like, you know what, what's next? I'm gonna write a book. And then 10 years later, it was published. Um, <laughs> And sometime in that 10 years, between the ages, like I was in my late 20s, by the time I was in my late 30s, I was like, maybe I don't want to hang the next phase of my career uh, on this dick joke. It's a good joke, but I don't want to be telling it every day for the rest of my life. Uh, So now it is Cocktail Dive Bar, Real Drinks, Fake History, and Questionable Advice from New Orleans 12 Mile Limit, uh, which is one of my bars in New Orleans. Uh, And now it has a book. And the book is a lot of fun.
1: I mean, and 12 Mile Limit's been around for a while, and it's been kind of... um... Dominating is maybe a strong word, but it's been on the scene in a visible way almost yes. its whole life, right? Yeah.
5: Um, I bought a bar in 2010. Uh, the bar had been there since time immemorial. There was bar, The building was built in the early 1900s, like 19 aughts. Um, I know that it was a bar at least as early as the 1920s. I don't know if it was always a bar. I think it was a re- might have been a, like a regional pumping station or a corner store or something like that. Uh, but it's been a bar since at least the 1920s. Um, I heard it was a ball player hangout in the 1920s, which oh, is wow. interesting because the New yeah. York Yankees used, the, used Pelican Park in New Orleans as their spring training home in the mid-20s. And that was, oh man, I guess i got to say 1920s now that we're in the 20s again. Uh, <laughs> um, but Babe Ruth was, the, was recently picked up by the Yankees. And as a notorious drinker, uh, I could say with some confidence that Babe Ruth probably drank at the bar that would eventually be 12 Mile Limit. Amazing. Um, so, so that's, that's fun. It's a little something we can hang our hat on. Uh, but I bought it in 2010. It was a very, very rundown. It was almost destroyed by Katrina, uh, which made it both affordable and it took a lot of work to get it to where it is now. Uh, we And we instituted my background. I, I was, as I discussed, it was a Commander's Palace. I was at a bar downtown in New Orleans called Loa. I helped open the, the restaurant bar Coquette, Coquette Bistro and Wine Bar uh, on Magazine Street uptown. Um, and then bought my own plus in 2010. So my background was primarily in high end, uh, hotel and restaurant bartending and being able to bring some of that, the, the quality of cocktails into this space where it would have made no sense to try to shoehorn a legitimately elevated concept into this, into the neighborhood that we're in, into the, the building that we were in, so it was a, it was very much like okay, my background's in cocktails. I guess I should do cocktails. That's what people know me for. But really, I wanted to be like a fun, approachable, easygoing neighborhood bar. Hence, cocktail dive bar. And yeah, we got. Uh, I think that was. You know, there's a lot more of that now. I think the the sort of backlash against the snooty bartender handlebar mustache oh, no, I would never make a dirty martini kind of bartender um, <laughs> is, is pretty well established now. And there's a you can go to a neighborhood bar now and get a reasonably well-made old-fashioned. Not all the time, but it's not a surprise anymore. But in 2010, people were pretty shocked by the concept. So we got a lot of press early on, and we became pretty busy pretty quickly, which was a blessing and a curse because when people just kind of start showing up and handing you money, it's easy to paper over a lot of the what what were structural problems that I didn't realize existed as somebody who would never really managed a bar in that way and was still drinking heavily in my 20s. Um, I don't necessarily recommend that as a business model. It's like, let's just see how it goes, is, is not a good way to open a business. <laughs> um, but again, being popular early on allowed us to, to sort of paper over that. And then over time, I've sort of corrected for some of those early mistakes. Don't really drink that much either, which helps the bottom line considerably in a number of ways.
3: Uh, yeah. <laughs> we, are, we are none of us in our 20s anymore, for better yeah.
5: and for worse. <laughs> I remember it fondly and vaguely.
1: <laughs> uh, well, yeah, these guys have heard me say numerous times, uh, um, I lived in New Orleans for three years, so they tell me. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, fondly and vaguely are two things that I'm powerfully familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you've also now opened a second place, right? Uh, more of a wine situation.
5: Yeah, the, we opened uh, the Domino, um, Saint Claude Avenue, the Bywater neighborhood of New Orleans Love in two thousand. Thank you. I I don't know why I d- accepted congratulations <laughs> for
1: that. I did yeah. not start the Bywater. Accepting <laughs> right. the award on behalf of the Bywater. <laughs> <Indeed>. Cole New <laughs> Bywater couldn't be here today, so <laughs> <laughs> um,
5: it's uh, well. If you're familiar with the Bywater, you know where Red's Chinese is on Saint Claude. Yes. Yeah. yeah, right next door. We could we could touch both buildings if you're if you're of sufficient wingspan. Nice. Um, and we opened in June of 2019. And again, I can say I have nothing but immaculate timing and luck. Uh, but it's still there, of all, of all the crazy things. And with the original concept for the Domino, we were going to be sort of a wine dive. So the way that 12-mile limit was a cocktail dive bar, um, we were, the, the, the Domino was sort of positioning itself to be a wine dive. So wine on draft you know here's a, our well no well our house wine was was carlo rossi merlot you know we we're trying to be uh, and so and having some some interesting eclectic wines from of the world but focusing both on affordability um and also interesting packaging so we would try to get away from corks because there's issues with sustainability in corks mm-hmm. uh, so all the bottled wine we had was in screw caps we had a lot of draft wine we had box wine we had canned wine and sort of those sort of formats too, because the perishability is lower, the, uh, you, right. you can, and the shipping costs are lower because the glass is one of the, the least uh, ecologically and, and economically viable ways of, of shipping things long distances. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, could af- we could offer things that were, were interesting, but at a lower price point. Over time, uh, we realized that wine uh, was one of our lower selling sectors. So we sort of pivoted more recently to being more of a cocktail dive bar there as well just cuz you know you, you can't really tell people how to engage with the bar and when we realized that more people were there to drink to drink cocktails and mixed drinks uh then eventually we we narrowed the focus on wine. So we still have the draft wine, we still have plenty of wines available, but the focus is really just more on being just being a fun neighborhood bar. That was really the focus all along the wine dive or cocktail dive, those are those are just hooks. Those are a way to to get people The way to talk about the bar, but really it's just neighborhood bars. That's the, that's the idea. You know, I, I love that because I mean, Grand Army, that's how
4: we, it's been open for seven years now. um, But it's exactly what we were thinking about it. We're like, all right, well, we're going to have something for everyone. We want it to be like a neighborhood bar. um, Definitely some elevated cocktails and food, but then, you know, we also have, you know, cans of Narragansett and you know things (laughs) like that. But ultimately it's just a place for people to hang out and meet, and talk, and and enjoy themselves, and I feel that a lot of our kind of era of, like, you know, me and Souther, who've been doing this for a while, it's like, we kind of all realized that. We all went through the, like, vest and curly mustache phase, and, but we had to, we had to, like, we had to establish that, so people would start taking bars seriously, instead of a place where you just went to go get fucked up, right, um, but yeah, I mean, it's a lot more casual these days, and it's you know I keep I keep going back to this, but Trader Joe's has a fucking bottled Negroni, a Trader Joe's brand bottled <laughs> Negroni. So that kind of tells you where we're at as far as like what people are, what consumers are aware of and drinking, and just the culture of of, of the types of drinks that we're we're experiencing. Yeah, these
5: days. I mean Negroni Week has been going on for decade plus i'm not sure exactly how long but a long time and for a long time i was like campari is crazy this is never going to be a mainstream thing you're always going to be like if you're like when you do these sort of charitable tie-ins people feel obliged to buy these drinks because they want to support the cause but if you're giving somebody like a broad audience the negroni is like a lot of people aren't ready for that palette wise and i was i'm happy to be wrong that the cultural palette in america has really swung in a way that negroni is a mainstream drink now and that's great i I didn't think i would live to see the day and yet here we are (laughs)
3: Well, I, I I will say, I, and this is probably a little bit of a tangent, but well, screw it, it's the speakeasy. Um, <laughs> I, I I have a a pretty successful track record of converting people that I date to Negronis. They tend to they tend to hate them when they start dating me, and then by the time that you know I, I inevitably screw it up, and they. Cease dating me. Um, they are huge, huge fans, and I think that that points to one, uh, my extreme prowess as a salesperson, but also two, the fact that but you date is... a lot of people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I, I actually, yeah, I guess it points to a third thing too. That, uh, that's, a, but that's another, that's for uh, a, a different podcast entirely. So the people um, you date
5: become more open to bitterness. Is what I'm hearing. That is yeah. exactly
3: right. That is my brand. um <laughs> But I think from the admittedly small sample size, you can see that it's the sort of thing where if you're, you know, obviously we don't like bitterness, we're not programmed to like bitterness as a species, but if it's the sort of thing that like we're around and culturally people are like, oh, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, oh, someone else is drinking it. Oh, it's Negroni week again. Eventually you can kind of warm up to it and eventually, you know, really appreciate the sort of complexity and depth of that drink. My, my current girlfriend, the first time I gave her one said, and I'm quoting her here, this tastes like bugs <laughs> <laughs> and now she's a big fan. Not, so not I don't well. know. It's, it's all of our palates have, I guess, just become a little bit more, you know, sophisticated because these things have just been out there longer, you know?
1: Right. Yeah. And not so long ago it had bugs in it.
4: Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's just culturally, it's a, I, you know we can say this every single week on the show that this is what an you know like what an exciting time to be in this industry or to be someone who loves cocktails and food it's like it's just constantly evolving day by day and week by week and i in in some ways other ways kind of devolving into like a really beautiful warm kind of neighborhoody divy bar that you can i i think about it this way I think about Nick Jarrett right um so Nick Jarrett used to do cocktails at Bushwick Country Club, right? Before he ever worked at, like, Death & Company or anything like that, he he was doing, like, a cocktail night at Bushwick Country Club.
1: As a yeah, he'd bring guy. his own glassware. he he set the whole thing up, I remember. Yeah, with Tanya Guffey and Frank Cisneros. And and, and uh, Tom Chadwick,
4: yeah. And Tom Chadwick, yeah. And then, of course, then, you know, they all end up working at the top cocktail bars in New York City. Nick moves to New Orleans. He's working at Cure, But then he also works at The Saint, you know, I, you know, it, it's so like to see someone go in that kind of art is really amazing because it's like, all right, he's one of those people, everyone, all the aforementioned are those bartenders who took it from, they pulled it up from the archives and from the dirt, brought it up, elevated. It, and they're like, all right, cool. We did it. Everyone, everyone's on board now, right? We're all aligned. Okay. Now let's all fucking relax. <laughs> right? And we all know what a Negroni is. We all know what a quality old fashioned is. So now let's just take a breath, take like loosen your tie and let, let your mustache fall back down. Um, and let's just enjoy each other and enjoy these cocktails. It created a new standard that was there a long time ago. I mean, we're correcting a lot of the, the downfalls of prohibition that took way too long to, to correct, but it's just what, what a great time to be, uh, you know, in the bar industry and to be a cons- uh, customer and consumer. Right. I mean, like, yeah. To to have these two bars that you have in New Orleans is a true testament to that.
5: Yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly. I love Nick, and I love that about him, Nick, that he's equally at home in Cure or now at Pachados in the French mm-hmm. Quarter, uh, in a new Cureco spot, which is uh, totally yeah. worthy of a visit. Beautiful courtyard. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but Yeah, that's equally on my, it's equally at home on my there. list for
1: this trip. I'm coming down for tales, and I'm, I'm Oh gonna no going to go see that place and him. As you should, Uh, yeah. That he's
5: equally at home behind the bar at Cure as he is behind the bar at the Saint, and that being able to fluidly move between those two spaces does, I think. I think you're completely right. So it speaks to where we are as an industry right now and how exciting it is. And it's sort of it's it's kind of weird that 12 mile limit was on the was on the vanguard of that was on the forefront of that movement. I didn't expect it to be trendsetting. It was just sort of like, what do I do? Cocktails. What is this place? A dive bar. All right, let's (laughs) mash them up. Uh, and it was just like, oh, that's just what—that's where the world was, you know. That and 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 sort of being able to capture that—that that lightning in a bottle
1: was uh, a happy accident, I'll say. It's amazing. <laughs> Let's say, hypothetically, sure. <laughs> Crazy thing for a person to do, but go on. <laughs> ...terrorism
5: into, into a new age, and, and where can we see it going from here? Well, I mean, we talked earlier about how, or I talked earlier about how the Guild really grew by leaps and bounds in the in the aughts and teens, and a lot of that growth was because of that same kind of, those same snooty bartenders, for lack of a better term, who were taking the craft very seriously, and then going through that phase as an industry was very important because we really needed to, to rediscover how good drinks could be and how we should be taking them seriously to a certain extent. We shouldn't be taking ourselves seriously, but we should be taking the drinks seriously. Um... And that, that was how the, gro- the growth of the uh, the Guild happened, was just sort of almost accidentally, that people realized it was there and they flocked to it. And the people that flocked to it were primarily craft cocktail bartenders. So the Guild, of course, being around 75 years, we've not always been a craft bartender-focused society, but because that's where the growth was coming from and because that's where really the, the attention was going for, you know, the media attention was going, where people's attention was going, despite the fact that it's always been a... S- small minority of the bar community is craft bartending, you know, more, vast majority of people who are bartending today, professional bartenders, lifelong bartenders are in chain restaurants. They're in sporting arenas. They're in music venues. They're in places like that. Strip clubs, you know, places where uh, sports bars, the, these are where most bartenders are working. And so the guild really kind of became for lack of a better term, like a, a fancy bartender, social club, um, But it was because all this growth came from there. And we sort of, as as any membership-based organization, we sort of became a reflection of our members. Uh, But right now, and and this is, it's a double-edged sword for reasons that should be pretty obvious. uh, The membership has contracted a lot. There was a little bit of contraction before the pandemic. um, And then when the pandemic hit, uh, we rolled forward. We we didn't ask anybody to pay dues for about a, a year and a half rolled forward a lot of those memberships but once people were starting to ask we started to ask people to actually you know pay to be part of the organization again we were a lot of people dropped off and our membership is probably maybe 20 25% of what it was at its peak about 5 6 years ago
1: wow that's a um, massive
5: amount of attrition that's a massive amount of attrition but you know the the disruptions to the to the industry are, are are no less massive so it'd be weird if we didn't have that happen i think but what it means is that we really have an opportunity to regrow thoughtfully, because we had we grew accidentally the first time around. People just came to us. Um, but now, and, and there's been a lot of discussion at the, at the chapter level, at the national level, about how we can pivot back to not just being the fancy bartender social club, to bringing in people who represent a much more diverse range of professional identities, people who work in clubs, people who work in sporting arenas or music venues, because we're not the... United States Craft Bartenders Guild. We are the United States Bartenders Guild, and we have to do better for the for the longevity of the organization, at at reaching those members and providing value to those members. So that is really a big part of the focus for the organization as a whole, and for for my tenure as president. I should also note that it's this the whole structure of the organization has changed a lot in the last few years. I think the rapid growth and some of the problems that that came around because of that rapid growth meant that the organization wasn't prepared to deal with a lot of the issues that that it had to deal with. Um, but organizationally, people realized that. And now the whole structure of the organization has changed. So instead of directly electing, like I wasn't voted on to be vice president by the entirety of the organization. I was voted on to be a member of the board of directors. And then the board of directors chooses the officers. Uh, so instead of having you know, the national treasurer elected as an elaborate, part of an elaborate popularity contest, the board of directors, which is still part of a popularity contest, but at least it's a slightly more egalitarian. <laughs> the board of directors as a collective unit decides who among them, or even people who aren't on the board, might be the best people to fill these officer roles. So the treasurer is not somebody who is just like, got the most votes. They're somebody who the board of directors has decided would be the best treasurer for the organization at this time. And so the president really, the, like the, 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 whole, the hub of power has shifted. And I think the president, at before when it was direct election for all national officers and for all chapter officers, the president really was sort of like the president in, a, in that chief executive way. But nowadays, I think really the president is just, the, the, the hub of power is the board itself, as those nine people who serve on the National Board of Directors. As president, I preside over the board. I'm also the chair, so I, I run the meetings. And I'm empowered to to speak on behalf of the the board when we're not uh, convened. Um, but as president, I am the representative of the board of directors. The board of directors is the real nexus of power in the organization. The real boss is that nine people,
1: not, not me. Right. Forming, obviously, a little bit more of a collective. I would ask just uh, as a side note, I know we're going to have to wrap up pretty quickly here, but I I totally understand, and we were definitely trying to do the same when I was the president of the New York City chapter. Is to draw in those members who are not "quote unquote" craft bartenders, but we were always kind of struggling to decide what it is we were offering those people. Because if I, you know, when I had my time in dive bars, you just went in, punched the clock, rocked out drinks, and you left. I don't know what the guild would have offered me back then, but once I became, you know, more craft centered the guild offered me networking connections and and you know things like that but I don't know that those are as important to the to this you know quote-unquote dive bartender what what what's the appeal and how do you draw those members to to the to the table
5: so yeah I think you're right that a lot of what the guild offers for people is focused on on the craft world uh, so a lot of the educational offerings if we're doing like, talking about brand knowledge that kind of thing uh, or, or cocktail knowledge specifically that kind of, uh, is, is oriented towards the craft world, but we could alf- also offer things. And a lot of the chapters do just like, like health classes, like yoga classes, things like that fitness. Um, and, uh, we can, we've done financial literacy for people in the service industry because it's a very complicated, uh, landscape. Yeah, if you're not getting that kind of regular paycheck. So budgeting is, a, is, a, is an educational opportunity for us. And I think the community piece, though, too, because a bartending can be a very solitary occupation. You're often the only person working in your place of business at any given time. If you're in a dive bar, there's, there's not usually, I say, various places work different ways. If it's busier, there's probably three, four people behind the bar. But a lot of the time, even at 12 mile limit, there's like there's one person behind the bar. And so it can be very, or if you're in a, a restaurant, like if, when I was at Commander's Palace, there would be, you know, 40 people in the kitchen and 60 people uh, waiting tables and four bartenders and two of them were alone at their bars, right? So it's, it can be very isolating. So building up a community of bartenders, not just to sit around and talk about the number of times you should stir a Manhattan, but to just like be in community with each other. I think that is a very valuable thing that any bartender could could get value from.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. And uh, and I, I, you know, I'm glad you sort of voiced those things so that people can understand. I think, I think there's plenty of merit in being a member of an organization like this. And I think that so you're all going to
5: rejoin? Is that what uh, I'm hearing?
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk off air. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, you know, again, uh, um, whatever maybe issues I've had with the guild over time, um, I've still I still see its value for especially, you know, sort of the young up and coming bartenders, or or as you just mentioned, sort of non-craft bartenders, there's, there's plenty of stuff in there for them. So happy to hear that you're out there doing good works. And I'm happy to also hear that the ultimate goal is for the guild to become a a, sort of a lobbying power and advocating power for the community at large, because man, again, we realized during the pandemic that that just kind of doesn't exist for us.
5: Yeah. For real. Also, that's a way that, and to circle back to that, that kind of advocacy is one way that we can really improve the lives of bartenders across the spectrum.
1: Well, yeah, bartenders, bar owners, uh, uh, and, and again, even the patrons, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, man, this has been a great chat. Uh, uh, Cole, thanks for hanging out with us and, and giving us part of your day and talking to us about all these things. Um, definitely going to come back down to new Orleans this year. I'm coming. I don't know uh, about Greg and Damon, but I'll definitely be there for Tales. Um, I'm definitely going to come visit your bars and shake your hand in person, uh, and I can't wait to pick up your book as well. You want to uh, tell us where we can get a hold of a copy of your book, or where we can follow your shenanigans on social media? Yeah,
5: you can follow me at uh, at T Cole Newton, all one word. Uh, you can find my book from uh, pretty much any. Any bookseller, if they don't have it in stock already, they can get you a copy. It was a national release, so it's easy to track down. I have been instructed by my publisher to be platform agnostic about uh, where to buy it so we don't accidentally anger any of our potential partners. Mm-hmm. Um, so your favorite local bookseller is kind of what I tell people. Although I should also note that there's a bookstore in New Orleans that's got a pretty solid online store called Blue Cypress Books, and I have taken the time to autograph every copy that is at Blue Cypress. Um, nice. So you can get it there. Um, but you can Nice follow... upsell. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you follow the bars, uh, just, you know, find me on social media and you can find the links to the bars. There's a bunch of different apps there, but no need to go through that
1: rabbit hole. Yeah. Easy enough. T Cole Newton on Instagram and you can find the bars and get, get, uh, get a copy of the book as well. That's um, well, man, really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us today. And. Uh, Yeah, thanks for I guess that's That's it for this week's episode of the Speakeasy. Uh, Tune into Heritage Radio Network for plenty more shows just like this one. Go to our website and uh, click on the Beating Heart to donate to this show and keep us on the air uh, and all the shows. Uh, And again, thanks, everybody, for being here today. Cheers. 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 Cheers.
3: So you don't shun the devil with your rock.
1: This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.